your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Walter Williams. He is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a nationally syndicated columnist. He is the author of many books, but most recently, American Contempt for Liberty. Dr. Williams, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So in your new book, American Contempt for Liberty, it's a collection of your columns and spans a lot of territory, but a number of them overlap with the subjects that we focus on here, inequality in the welfare state. And so I want to focus on a couple of them, and I want to start with the issue of education. What's your evaluation of the state of American education today? Well, I think that uh, uh, all, all the evidence shows that it's not a very, very uh, attractive state. Uh, that is, uh, it turns out that um, close to 50 percent, possibly more, uh, incoming freshmen uh, to colleges, college freshmen, uh, they require uh, remedial English or remedial math or remedial writing. And what that suggests is that um, the, the, the high school diplomas that they have are fraudulent. That is, the high school diploma essentially says, well, gee, you've, uh, uh, it, well, it's supposed to say that you've, you've mastered uh, a 12th grade uh, reading, writing, arithmetic and are therefore ready for college and turns out not, not to be the case. And so, uh, that's the story in general education, but so far as uh, black education is concerned, it's a true tragedy. Uh, that is, uh, the uh, black student, the average black high school graduate or high or, or high school senior, uh, he has the reading, writing, and math abilities of a of a white seventh or eighth grader. And these uh, uh, statistics are shown by the National Assessment of Education Progress that's put out by the Department of Education. Uh, and so, uh, so the education that black kids are receiving is a is a tragedy, and uh, the education that white kids are receiving is nothing to write home about. Now, the na- number one cause we'll often hear of this is lack of spending by the government on education. Certainly spending in poor communities. Do you think that that is a correct assessment of what's wrong with education? No, no I don't think uh, spending spending is not the uh, issue. It turns out that in many cases, the, the higher the spending, the lower the uh, academic achievement. Uh, Washington, D.C., uh, it spends about $29,000 uh, uh, per kid on education. Uh, in Baltimore, uh, uh, I think it's uh, they, they might be the second or third highest spending jurisdiction, and New and, and Newark is among the top ten. And the educational performance uh, in these uh, uh, school districts are, are near the bottom. I often point out that probably the uh, the Department of Education, Washington D.C., they're probably hoping that Mississippi does not secede from the union. Otherwise, they'd be dead last in terms of academic achievement. So what is the problem then? Well, um, there, there, there are many problems. There, there's, a, there's enough blame for uh, everybody to have their share, all the participants. Uh, that is, 
parents that do not pay a lot of attention to what the, what, what the kids are doing, uh, the kids who have alien and hostile minds, the education process, and then uh, then then teachers and administrators who uh, uh, who engage in educational fraud, and so. Uh, you know, there's a, there's enough blame to go around for everybody. And so far as putting more money in education, you have to ask yourself, uh, that is, certain things that are necessary for education, politicians, teachers, and administrators can't provide. Uh, for example, for a, kid to, for a kid to do well in school, somebody must make sure he's in bed by 8 or 9 o'clock so that he can get uh, uh, 10 hours of sleep. Somebody must get him up in the morning and get him breakfast. Somebody must get him to school on time. Somebody must must make sure that he does his homework and minds the teachers. Now, if those things are not done, then I don't care how much money you put in education, you're not going to get much of a result. And so if those things are not done, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you know that's a very, very important input into the education uh, pro- uh, uh, process. So... So there's enough blame for everybody to have a share, and I think that to say that uh, we need to spend more money that <laughs> that works to the benefit of the uh, teachers' union and the uh, and the administrators. Now, do you see any reason why it is that government should be in control of education? Because we take that as self-evident, and yet we don't see such problems in places in the market where there's competition and incentive to provide something of quality or else go out of business. Well, clearly, at the federal level, there is no basis at all. As a matter of fact, it's no constitutional basis for the federal government to be involved in education. Uh, the the uh, Constitution uh, says that the uh, federal government can only do those things that are enumerated in the Constitution, and nowhere in the Constitution do you find uh, find the word education. So I think it's very clear that the federal government should not be involved in education. At the state level, they're not on, they, they don't operate under uh, those kind of uh, constraints as a federal government. But at, in, in terms of your question, I think that we can have uh, uh, education privately provided because the, the, it was privately provided throughout most of our, our nation's history. That is, Public education really did not come into come to the fore until the late 1800s and uh, and early 1900s. Uh, people were uh, educating their kids in their home, or either they would hire a, a school mom. They had the one one uh, one room schoolhouse, and then uh, uh, when we weren't spending so much money, or the government was not so involved in education, uh, education was better, according to one Wall Street. Uh, one, one Wall Street article, and I can't I can't cite it, but it says that a person who with a high school diploma in 1945 had the educational equivalent of a person with a bachelor's degree in 1960. So, so you know, the, the the very fact that government's so heavily involved in education is not is uh, and and there's reduced competition. I think that that explains a lot of our problems. Now, you mentioned some statistics in terms of the quality of education. As somebody who deals directly with students and has for a while, what's been your um, impression of what's happened over the last several decades in terms of how prepared students are for college? Well, uh, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's going in the direction <laughs> that we don't want it to go into. And I think that 
um, they're, they're not strict standards uh, by the high school. As a matter of fact, uh, not even by the colleges. Um, and so uh, the the uh, the kids, the, the educational achievement of the kids that we receive in college is getting uh, lower and lower. And if there are any bright spots to the education, it's the foreign students. Many times the foreign students have uh, are far better prepared uh, to uh, for education and for college uh, than than American students. I want to ask a slightly different question about the state of college students today. And I think there seems to be, at least as somebody reading the news, a disturbing trend of intolerance for ideas that are not politically correct and a real hostility towards free speech. Do you think these concerns are overblown, or have you seen the reality of that in your own experience? Well, I, I think that I think that if there's an organized if if there's an organized uh, attack. On, on free speech, it's at the college level, uh, uh, where uh, people are concerned about. Uh, uh, they have, they have college, colleges have regulations where you can't say things that might be interpreted uh, by others as hurtful. Uh, uh, they, and, and they have speech codes on uh, college campuses where, where, uh, where you know, for example, at University of uh, Connecticut, uh, they, were, they had a speech code at one time that. Uh, you, you um, uh, uh, it was a violation to have inappropriately directed laughter. That is laughing at uh, maybe some foolish statement made by a uh, by a fellow student uh, that was punishable. Uh, yes, I think that uh, free speech is under attack, and I think that that there might be uh, a reason why uh, free speech is under attack, and that is uh, free speech is very very important to. Uh, is very very important to tyrants because it, it enables them to be able to proselytize, and once they once they gain power, then free speech becomes a a, a liability, and uh, that's the case on uh, college campuses. That is, we had the free speech movement at Berkeley. Um, Mario Salvia, I believe his name was. Uh, in, in the uh, in the early 60s, they wanted to, you know to have free speech, and once they got free speech, then <laughs> on college campuses, these are the people who are attacking free speech. Right, and even then, the way they got free speech was to interrupt speeches that they disagreed with, yeah. and prevent ideas that they disagreed with from coming to the fore. I want to turn to the issue of race now. Let's start by setting aside today's debate. You grew up before the civil rights movement, and so I wonder what's your impression of how far we've come in terms of the treatment of black Americans and how far you think we have to go. Well, I, I think that um, I was born in 1936, and so uh, way, way before uh, the uh, the civil rights acts uh, of, uh, of, let's say, 1964, and I've seen uh, a lot of racial discrimination during my lifetime, particularly when when I was uh, in the army and I was in uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and uh, Fort Stewart uh, in Georgia, just um, by 40 miles from uh, Savannah. And I think what we can say uh, during my lifetime, I think that um, that that the civil rights struggle is over and it's won. That is, at one time, 
black Americans did not have the constitutional guarantees as everybody else. Uh, now we do. Uh, the uh, we have all the all the constitutional rights of uh, anybody else. Uh, if we and we have other rights, if we want to buy a million dollar house, we can buy a million dollar house. If we have a million dollars, uh, we can go and come any anywhere uh, we want. So, I think that the uh, civil rights struggle is over and won. Now, just because the civil rights struggle is over and won, it does not mean that there are not major problems among large segments of the black community, but they're not civil rights problems. And uh, the, uh, the the let's say the very fact that seven thousand uh, Black Americans emerged each year—that's uh, a hell of a problem, but it's not a civil rights problem. Uh, the uh, the fact that seventy-two percent of Black kids are born out of wedlock—that's a hell of a problem, but it's not a civil rights problem. And but however, if we view these problems as civil rights problems, if we view these problems as as a result of racial discrimination, well, the, uh, the 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 solution to these problems will be elusive uh, forever. Well, let's look at that then. There's huge gaps between blacks and whites if we just look at a statistical level, whether it's education outcomes, income, incarceration rates, you mentioned murder rates. And the main explanations we hear for this are the legacy of slavery and racism, including what they'll often put as institutional racism. And you say you don't believe that this is the explanation. So why not? And what do you regard as important factors in these results? Well, I, I think that that what, what we're seeing today among many, many uh, black Americans is entirely new in black history. Uh, that is, the, as I pointed out, the illegitimacy rate among blacks is 72 percent. Uh, but, however, in 1938, it, the illegitimacy rate was 11 percent. Uh, only one-third of black kids live in two-parent families. As, as early as 1880, depending on what city you're looking at, 70 to 80 percent of black uh, kids lived in two-parent families. Um, now, those are now. If you if you say that the problem that those problems are a legacy of slavery, one has to ask the question: Well, how come they were not worse at a time when blacks were uh, much closer to slavery, such as 1880 or 1925, uh, than they are today? And so, I think that the the uh, legacy of slavery uh, uh, is is just plain nonsense, unless. The the effects of leg, leg, uh, the effects of the le- legacy of slavery of slavery uh, skips several generations. What do you think the role of the welfare state has been all in all of this? Has it helped Black Americans, or do you think it's made them worse off? Well, I think <clears throat> I think that. Um, I think that if you ask any economist, whether he's a conservative or liberal or free market economist, uh, uh, he will tell you that if you tax something, you're going to get less of it. If you subsidize something, you're going to get more of it. And what we've been doing is subsidizing slovenly behavior. And the welfare state has been the main tool of subsidizing slovenly behavior. Uh, That is... uh, we we made it more comfortable for people to say, well, look, uh, 
you know, I, I don't want to take this McDonald's job. Uh, you know, I'm going to sit and, and wait around. I'm going to take welfare. I'm going to take uh, unemployment compensation. Compen- <clears throat> compensation. Now, if not taking the uh, McDonald's job meant starvation, then people wouldn't take it. I mean, people wouldn't wouldn't uh, refuse work. But the fact of business is that uh, uh, not taking it does not mean starvation. Uh, when when I was a, a youngster, uh, for a girl to have a baby out of wedlock, she was a disgrace, and very often uh, she is sent down south to live with her grandmother or live with her relatives. Uh, today, a girl ha- has a baby out of wedlock, whether it's black or white. She gets uh, food stamps, uh, subsidized housing, and then on top of that, there's no social sanction. Uh, that is, uh, years ago, when during my younger years, for a for a mother to hold a a uh, baby shower for a baby who has uh, for you know for an unmet I'm sorry, let me an unwed mother to hold a baby shower would be unthinkable. But they hold baby showers. There's no it's no sanction to uh, having a baby social sanction to having a baby out of wedlock, and. And the tra- and and the welfare state is an equal opportunity destroyer because, uh, as I pointed out earlier, in 1938, illegitimacy among blacks was 11 percent, and among whites it was 3 percent. Uh, today, the illegitimacy rate among blacks is 72 percent, and among whites is over 30 percent. And so the the, uh, the welfare state encourages or, or it lowers the cost of engaging in certain kinds of behavior. And then also, from a social point of view, uh, years ago, if a, if a girl had a baby out of wedlock, there were shotgun weddings, and uh, and the shotgun wedding was to make a, make a man uh, live up to his responsibility of having uh, impregnated a woman. Now, anybody who's critical of the welfare state encounters one argument that is considered, in effect, a uh, trump card which cannot be overcome, and that's you're cruel and you lack compassion. So were I to be one of these folks, I would say, Dr. Williams, you're cruel and lack compassion. What's your response to that, quote, argument? Well, I think that, that true compassion requires dispassionate analysis. That is, if you're going to if you're going to help people, you you have to be hard-minded. You have to make them, uh, 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 you know, live up to their responsibilities. Now, if you ask the question, uh, what person who really cared about his daughter uh, would, you know, and if the daughter came made a mistake and a 16 year old and she got pregnant, uh, what person would say, well, look, here's five hundred dollars. Uh, come back next week and next month, and you get another five hundred dollars. And if you have another baby, you get seven hundred dollars. Uh, nobody who really cared about their kids would do that, but we do that to to poor people. That is, we tell poor people, "Well, look, here's a certain amount of money, and if you make bigger mistakes, you get a larger amount of money." And and I I wouldn't call that compassion at all. That I mean that is that is not compassion. It's it's a uh, it's creating a dependency. The two chief ideas that are talked about in terms of discussion of race recently are the idea of white privilege and the Black Lives Matter movement. What are your evaluations of these 
issues or trends? Well, I think I think the idea of uh, of white privilege. I think that uh, that 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 is a uh, an argu- argument against achievement. That is, uh, uh, you know, if 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 my if I were if I were white, uh, people might accuse me of being uh, uh, having white privilege because I'm probably in the top two or three percent of income earners in our country. Uh, but uh, however. <laughs> I'm at the top uh, uh, percent, percentage of income earners in our country because of achievement, because of effort, and I think that's the same thing with uh, uh, with anybody. People achieve uh, uh, through effort, and and if you want to call it if you want to call achievement privilege, the, that's a, that it's a very unfortunate analysis, and and the whole business of uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, if you <coughs> excuse me. If 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 there were no more police shootings of black people, and if there were no more white people uh, murdering uh, uh, black people or killing black people, it will not have done very much for the slaughter of black people. That is, uh, close to seven thousand blacks are murdered each year. Matter of fact, fifty-two percent of uh, homicide victims in our country are black. And uh, and 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 I think the number is 94, either 96 percent of the time, uh, the uh, the the perpetrator is uh, another black person. So uh, when you say uh, Black Lives Matter, and I think that Black Lives do matter, everybody's life matters. I think that uh, focusing on what white people are doing or what white cops are doing is is missing the boat uh, because. Like this weekend, I, I, this weekend across our country, this last weekend across our country, I'd be willing to bet that there were a hundred blacks murdered, and I would be willing to bet that at the most one or two were murdered by a were killed by a white person. To play devil's advocate briefly, though, don't you think there is a unique thing to worry about if the murders are taking place by? representatives of the government and are motivated by widespread racism from people within the government well you know yeah you know people in the government they you know they they have racial preferences or or dislike blacks but i think that's a very very small part of it and i think that surely uh, if that is the case uh, that if uh, people are acting under the color of law to kill blacks i think that uh, something should be done about it but uh, that's that's only a, a drop in the bucket in terms of uh, black lives. Now, I want to ask one final question, and this is really about communication. I think one of the things that's very striking reading your columns and listening to the discussion today is that you're very skilled at taking complex issues and complex concepts, say, in economics, and making them very simple and direct. Now, how do you how did you acquire that skill, and how do you think that supporters of free markets can better acquire that skill? Oh well, uh, I didn't do it overnight. I'm almost 80 years old. But one day, when I was when I was a, a graduate student, a PhD student at UCLA, one of uh, Armin Alshin, one of my very tenacious mentors at UCLA, and very very distinguished scholar at UCLA. Uh, we were just kind of chatting, and he used to like to pick on me in class. But we were—it was—it was during a faculty graduate student coffee hour, and we were chatting in the hallway. 
and and uh, I forget what we were chatting about, but uh, Armin Alshin said to me, you know, Williams, you know, what the true test is whether whether someone knows the subject. The true test comes when he can explain to someone who does not uh, does not know a damn thing about it. And and I didn't think much, very much of it uh, at the time, but I think he's very true. He was accurate in pointing out that if you to be able to explain complex uh, ideas in ways that ordinary people understand them, I think I think it is a true test of whether you understand your subject. And 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 I uh, and I take delight. Uh, in explaining uh, economic uh, principles to the ordinary person without, uh, in an understandable way, without using all the jargon and mathematics and other uh, things that many economists uh, use. Walter Williams, thank you for being part of the Dead Dialogues. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So, no real wrap up today. But I do have a couple things. So first of all, I think both of these topics, education and race, merit much deeper discussion. So hopefully we'll get around to that in the near future. I also want to mention that if you go on Amazon right now and type in Don Watkins and you're on Brooke, you will also be able to find our forthcoming book now available for pre-order. And the title is Equal is Unfair, America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality. Now, unfortunately, it's not going to be here until April of 2016, although you will be getting lots more information, a lot of stuff on this issue from Yaron and me in the near future. But if you want to go there, check it out. I am eager to hear what you think of the title, what you think of the cover, what you think of us really tackling this issue. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.